So today's gospel uh, on this fourth Sunday of Advent, can you believe it? Next Sunday is Christmas, right? I mean, what happened to 2022? It feels like the fastest year of my life. I'm not sure why, but it does. But this fourth Sunday of Advent, um, we're invited to reflect again on the virgin birth, but really more specifically on the divine conception of the Son of God who became flesh and blood in the womb of a Galilean peasant. And you've heard it a thousand times, but just let it sink in again one more time. The Son of God became flesh and blood in the womb of a Galilean peasant. And as you know, Mary isn't just any pregnant Galilean peasant. She's an unmarried, yet engaged, pregnant Galilean peasant. And Matthew's gospel actually alone invites us to look and to listen, and if we're willing to actually feel our way through the experience of her fiancé, Joseph, into what? Into a very strange and messy and all-important reality, the details, the guts of the incarnation. And no, the earthly father of Jesus, had, he had no part in the conception of Jesus. But he does have a powerful part in the story. And I think that his powerful part can and it should renew. And I think it should expand our imagination and can expand our wonder in the gospel. That's my hope for us today. And thanks to Matthew for including him in the way he does. Because the gospels of Mark and John don't include the nativity story and don't mention Joseph. Luke, the ever-detailed historian, he basically just places Joseph at the scenes, so to speak. On the trip to Bethlehem for the census, at Jesus' lowly birthplace, and at his customary presentation at the temple as an infant. Joseph is also there that one time, right, where he and Mary accidentally left Jesus in Jerusalem during the Passover. But interestingly enough in that story from Luke, it's Mary who accosts the boy. We hear her voice venting, you know, that familiar parental cocktail of fear and stress and relief. You ever felt that as a parent? She's the one voicing it. And in Jesus' own words at the time, he had to be in his father's house, the temple, not Joseph's humble home in Nazareth. And Luke then tells us it's Mary who treasured up all these things in her heart. And Joseph was just there, in some sense, until he wasn't, we find out. At some point before Jesus' ministry, Joseph has apparently died. And we don't know when, we don't know how, because no one tells us. So Joseph is mostly a bit player, even to us, in the wonder of, the Chris, of our Christmas celebration, too. You know, just think about it. You know, he's standing there dutifully in our manger scenes very often, and our pageants are mostly relying on Luke's otherwise expansive, exhaustive account of the story. But not much Joseph is happening. And it might seem like he really doesn't matter much to the story, just a faithful foster dad, as much of the church of church tradition members, remembers him, and he's even called a foster dad in many theological writings. And so let's make things a little more interesting, shall we? Uh, maybe a little more uh, weird, maybe a little worse, depending on how you look at it uh, when we think about Joseph. Most Christians throughout time believed in the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. Most Christians. It's true. 
And no, this doctrine didn't pop up in those very strange Middle Ages either. At least from origin in the early 200s, definitely to Augustine 200 some odd years later, then with Athanasius and Basil and Ambrose in between, you're like, who are all those dudes? Well, you know, the fathers of the early fathers of the church. And then you have the major reformers who believed in the perpetual virginity of Mary. John Calvin, Martin Luther, Thomas Cranmer. And some of you are going, I didn't know. My Protestant upbringing didn't prepare me to know that those who are the first Protestants actually believed in this stuff. I won't ask you to raise your hand if you were not taught that, you know, the background of even the Protestant church still embraces it. They all believed that Mary remained a virgin after giving birth to Jesus, and thus only Jesus. You can probably include your favorite pre-modern theologian in this belief as well. Or maybe even your modern theologian. Maybe you want to email them and ask. And listen, I know it's feeling super Catholic up in here right now isn't it? But just stay with me. I don't have time to like thoroughly elaborate on this. I feel like I need to do it some justice. I I can't, I I don't want to elaborate on too much or defend or refute the idea, but if you do some research, you might actually be surprised why the church has held this view as uh, amongst the majority through history. Yes, they weighed scripture carefully wrestling with the complicated interpretation of Greek words for sibling or relative. Yes, they considered this long-held tradition that Joseph may have been a widower with children prior to Mary, namely James, who we know is the brother of Jesus. And after all, why were Jesus' brothers kind of bossing him around in John 7? I mean, I don't know, but they sound like big brothers. (laughs) What What do you believe, Seth? I don't know. But it's worth thinking about. There was plenty of argument about it. For instance, one of the first major theologians in the church, you know, in the third century, Tertullian, he wasn't having any of this. So if that's you, it's okay. You got some people there. However, however, Mary as the Iaparthenos, the ever-virgin, was actually accepted as the general consensus of the worldwide bishops at the Council of Ephesus in 431. Suffice it to say, the primary idea is this. It's that the miraculous conception and nurture and birth of the very Son of God through Mary's life and body was just for them too singular and profound a reality for this holy couple to simply move on from to other children. Or the possibility of them. It was everything, and it was enough. This is the view. And together they actively devoted her body and their whole lives to this singularity of their call. Again, you don't have to believe it. It's a secondary question. Some of you are still a wee bit uncomfortable right now, but don't let it ruin your Christmas, okay? It's just a powerful thing to think about when we think about the call of Joseph and what it may have really meant. And that's why I bring this point up. If it's true, maybe we should let it inspire additional wonder in what this meant, this obedience meant for Joseph. Uh, You know, what it meant for for Mary as well. To say yes to God. To say yes to the unknown. To say yes to a life and a family that was far different than Joseph imagined for himself. To say yes to faith. 
So let's just talk about that yes for a few moments. Remember here that Matthew began his gospel very intentionally with a detailed genealogy that, that arrives at Joseph and Mary. This is important because in our day, you know, we like to just sort of extract Jesus up out of his story and we just we selectively celebrate and centralize his moral teaching maybe or his example of radical love and care. Sometimes we settle for one over the other and we often just pull him up from the backdrop of the Hebrew scriptures which Jesus himself treasured. We pull him out of his own lineage. We pull him out of his own Jewish understanding uh, that he held and that he taught with regard to who we often call the God of the Old Testament. As if distinctions and excuses need to be made between the two. But Jesus didn't make the distinctions or the excuses. He didn't experience any tension there because he was, knew he was, and that he is the fulfillment and the flowering of this incredibly messy story of Yahweh God redeeming the world he loves, the world he created in goodness. So that's my first point where Joseph's yes is concerned. The story of faith, this faith, is never not messy at some point and quite often. We find Joseph betrothed to Mary, but he's in a dilemma, and he's no doubt sort of quavering in his self-talk. Think about it. Just try to put yourself in this kind of dilemma that he's in. Obviously, in that day, it wasn't, you know, being engaged wasn't, Mary, you're my soulmate, you know, and he's on one knee, and he's levitating the ring up, hopefully and wishfully, and then they take a selfie, and they blow up their little patch of the interwebs. That's not what we're talking about here. These were actually already two extended families who were already in covenant with one another because of their children. Two people sharing a public vow of chastity, awaiting their wedding day. And, you know, we could also go, okay, I know how those marriages worked. We could rush to modern cynicism, but let's not do that. You know, seeing here this heavy patriarchy where two dads make a business deal, right, and one with his daughter as property. That was the exception, not the rule. It would have been far more likely and more historically and culturally fair and true to see the excitement and the hope of two people who are about to take on the, the honor and the blessing and the hopes of, of growing their respective families, growing their village, growing their whole community. Because marriage was bigger than self-actualization and fulfillment. Imagine that. It was certainly bigger than sex and romance. Marriage was a key thread in the fabric of communal life of structure and solidity in living together. It was bigger than any two people. And guess what? It still is. But the fabric in our day is fraying pretty badly. Alas. So here in the midst of this covenant, Joseph's fiance is pregnant. She's no doubt been trying to reassure him, recalling her divine visitation from the angel Gabriel and his strange announcement that the Holy Spirit will, Iperkomai, will arrive to her. Well, that's mysterious. In the power of the Most High that will, Episkiezo, will cover her like a cloud. If it's as true as it is mysterious, it's stunning. It's the Holy Spirit doing over Mary what the Holy Spirit did over all of creation. But it's still a serious dilemma, isn't it? For real people in the real world. If it's not true, Mary's integrity or her sanity or both are a problem. 
Maybe she's already showing. We don't know at this point, right? But if not, she will be showing soon enough. And something must be done. Things must be handled. And there are no easy outs for Joseph. Not even close. So what is he going to do? He's going to do nothing short of the unthinkable. I don't think I am un- overstating this. We need to reflect on this deeply. Because verse, verse 19, it might sound like he's going to quietly abandon her, but that's not how this is going. There's more to it, isn't there? He is unwilling to put her to shame. So he will divorce her quietly. What does that mean? The assumption as he divorces her quietly will be that he broke the vow of celibacy, impregnated Mary, and now because he has the power to do this or to give her a certificate, he wants out for whatever reason, his prerogative. His plan will drastically improve the odds, though, that people will blame him as this deadbeat scoundrel and hopefully guarantee that they will not see her as an adulteress. All the shame will fall on him is his hope. He'll put his honor at stake, likely because he knows things will go much better for him as a man than for her as a woman. If he raises a ruckus or if he points a finger, she will be ostracized at best or stoned at worst. So by divorcing Mary, Joseph is, in a sense, going to quietly atone for her. He will deflect all the attention and the blame onto himself in the hope that she will be seen as an innocent or even a victim. And this is what I want you to think about right here. Before we even get to the dream, before we even get to Joseph's obedience, we already see the loving wisdom of God at work, not only in choosing the right woman, but choosing the right man, a just man who's willing to love his fiance as best he can under impossible circumstances and at great risk to himself not even certain of what's going on. We see a sacrificial heart. We see the heart of the Lord for his, un, his vulnerable bride. We see it already in Joseph. And we see more than that, don't we? With this heavy reality, this probably just burrowing nonstop through his brain, he has a dream. And get it, this, it's not a very shocking visitation like Mary's, mind you. This is just a dream from which he will awaken. He'll awaken and he's left with a choice, isn't he? He could press on in his plan, believing that maybe Mary's story that he's, he's heard many times and processed many times, now it's so permeated his thinking that he's now, it's now haunting his dreams, shaping his dreams. Or he has another choice. He can receive the message of this dream as from God. He can lay aside his plan of quiet divorce and he can believe that the Lord has a better one. He can lay aside his fear and believe that the same Lord who is known for intervening in the messy details of his own ancestry is now intervening in his own life. Because we get to put all this against the backdrop of that genealogy that precedes this story, and we should. It's full of mysterious and even scandalous moves of God through real life and real people to redeem the world. Joseph is indeed a son of David, and as it turns out, the four women mentioned in that Davidic lineage, Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Uriah's wife Bathsheba, they represent nothing short of a very dramatic 
and very turbulent and beautifully redemptive work of God. And Mary, in some sense, is the fifth woman. And Joseph is one among many men whose lives are works of interventionist love and grace. Works that don't eliminate all the pain, they don't eliminate all the uncertainty, but they carry God's people, both the men and the women in David's line to which he belongs, carrying them forward in the midst of the pain and the uncertainty. And now here through Joseph and his fiance, God's doing it again. So after waking up from such a stunning dream, nothing has really changed on paper. They still have to face it. It's still going to be challenging. There's still so many unknowns. Joseph must let go of. And think about it, friends. He must even grieve what might have been a simple, fruitful, normal life in their hometown with Mary. Maybe he really did lose his first wife tragically. And maybe he's hoping that his life with Mary is going to redeem all of that, all that loss. But it's not going to look the way he thought it would. It is going to be complicated upon complicated upon complicated. We don't know if Joseph pondered all this. What we do know is that he is giving his future to faith. He's saying yes. Verse 21, Joseph is given a father's duty by the angel to name this boy born of God and not of him, to give him a name already chosen and not by him. But the name he was to give this boy gave Joseph an even higher calling as an earthly father. The Lord saves will be his name, Yeshua, and he will live up to it. So whatever plans that this rough-handed Galilean might have had for his own son, these divine plans, they must and they shall supersede them. And Joseph says, yes. And in a sense, as we watch the story unfold, Joseph's life quietly embodies what Mary had already proclaimed. Let it be to me as you have said. Whatever you want. Not my will, but yours. If you will, Joseph's life is a womb. The life that he would make with Mary was being set apart and holy to bring their Redeemer into the world. New life through Joseph's life. The only one he's got. And this was the beginning of a new creation, as I said, upon which the Holy Spirit, the divine agent of life, and everything necessary for that life has, has uh, moved and is moving again. Albert Einstein uh, once said this. He said, imagination is more important than knowledge. He said, knowledge is limited, but imagination circles the world. Now, that's not the kind of quote I would think I would hear from Albert Einstein. Imagination is more important than knowledge. And the truth is, for anyone who would say yes to God, yes to Jesus, becoming your, our, Emmanuel, imagination is everything. Faith, by its very nature, it calls us to the unknown. It calls us to the imaginative. It calls us to the unknowable, at least for now. It's the nature of it. Like Joseph, it calls us to a higher imagination that yields our own, our own limited perceptions. We, we have to give them over. 
to God's perception, give over our own plans to the story of God that's found in the Word of God, which does in fact circle the world and all of history. This is an everyday yielding that we do, that Joseph had to do, awake you know, as, he, as he woke from the dream. As the Apostle Paul proclaimed, right now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but one day I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Friends, the nature of our faith is not about amassing more and more knowledge and details. It's not necessarily agreeing with the historic church and most Christians of the perpetual virginity. It isn't even just about getting all your doctrine right. It's about yielding your imagination in which all your hopes and your dreams and your expectations are held and shaped. It's about holding out to God your future, submitting your future to faith. It's about being fully known. Because you don't fully know, and you won't. It's about trust. The Gospels are as much or more about stoking your imagination toward wonder and faith and awe in God as they are about imparting knowledge or illuminating history. Yes, they do that, to be sure. We believe in the d divine conception and the virgin birth as events of history and of truths to be known. We've ratified them in our creeds. We believe the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus are historical facts. But like Joseph, these are truths received by faith. And let me tell you this, they are sustained in imagination and in wonder and in worship not in the tiny expanses of our knowledge. These are truths that promise by their very nature to chasten our lives and to change our plans. It's the way it works. They're always calling us, they're always calling us like Joseph to let go so that we can take hold anew. To let go so that in the divine imagination and in the promises of God to take hold anew. So really the question for us, if we try to just imagine what Joseph is going through and we try to be honest about the Christian life, what are we afraid of? To what are we clinging and must let go that we might take hold anew? There's always something, friends. Always, for me, at least. What is it? We want to take hold anew so that we too, like Joseph, that we can live our lives as a kind of womb for Christ, to be birthed not only in us, but through us to the world he loves, to our small and our complicated worlds, because that's what they are, our lives, our relationships, so that we, like Joseph, will not be afraid to take this story that is conceived, if you will, in us by the Holy Spirit as our own story. And where do we take it? Just the same place Joseph took it, into the unknown because we are known, and so was Joseph. This is the God we serve, and this is the story to which we belong, and do you believe it today? Lord, that's our hope. That's our, our expectation, Lord, that we will ever be renewed in our minds, in our imaginations, to embrace and accept what you're doing and what you have done and what you will do, because our plans can't possibly measure up Often our plans aren't even good for our own lives, much less for the world. So help us to trust you today. Lord, we confess that we're afraid very often of what it will mean to follow you more closely. Afraid of what we'll lose. 
But Lord, put us in the imagination, in the mind of what we will gain. Put us in the mind of what you know, for you know us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.